0: This is Tanakh Welcome back to Tanakh This is episode 18, Exodus chapters 13 through 16. So the Jews are free. And after reiterating the regulations of what we now know to be Pesach, of the need to tell and retell the story to our children, Moshe tells the Jews to consecrate the firstborn because of the slaughter of the firstborn, which broke Paro's resolve and to wear tefillin on your arm and in between your eyes to remember what happened in Egypt. Moshe also explains why they're taking the scenic route through the desert on the way to the Promised Land. And so fulfilling the pledge to Yosef, kept in trust for generations, Moshe takes up Yosef's bones as the Jews move from Sukkot to Etam at the edge of the wilderness. There God goes before them in a column of cloud by day and a column of fire by night. When the Jews encamp on the shore of the Red Sea, God tells Moshe what will happen next. Paro, his heart still hardened, will regret cooperating and seek to undo his decision to let the Jews go. He will muster his charioteers and they will pursue the Jews. In doing this, God, quote, will be glorified through Paro and all his armies so that the Egyptians may know that I am Adonai. And that is what precisely happens. The Egyptian chariots catch up and press the Jews up against the sea. And gripped with terror, the Jews call to Moshe, quote, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out to die in the wilderness? To which I would have responded, to my friend. But Moshe is a bit more sympathetic, urging the Jews to stand fast and see Adonai's deliverance for, quote, You see Egypt today, you will never see it again for the ages. Adonai will make war for you, and you be still. In other words, Shut up, Ralph, shut up! And then Moshe turns to God, awaiting the rescue, but God says, what are you looking at me for? Start marching and make it happen. Use your staff. So the column of cloud that used to lead the Jews moves to stand in between the Jews and the Egyptian chariots, and then Moshe, as directed, stretches out his hand over the sea, and the sea parts. The Jews cross the sea, quote, the waters, a wall for them on their right and on their left. And then God wreaks tumult in the Egyptian camp. And despite all the wheel loosenings, fire and clouds, the Egyptians relentlessly pursue the Jews into the parted sea. So when Moshe stretches out his hand at dawn, the sea returns to its original place, covering the chariots and the riders and the horses, quote, not even one of them remained. And Israel saw the great hand that Adonai had wrought against Egypt, the people held Adonai in awe, trusted in Adonai, and in Moshe his servant. What follows in chapter 15 is known as the Song of the Sea, a poem song that celebrates Israel's rescue, catharsis, and newfound freedom. Then Miryam, Moshe's sister and prophetess, took a timbrel in hand and with all the women and their timbrels began to dance and sing. But this moment of exultation and holding in awe and trust is really short-lived. It's barely two verses before the Jews are thirsty and begin to complain. Quote, what are we to drink, they kvetch, and after a quickie miracle, there is water. Chapter 16 recounts more moving in the wilderness and more kvetching. Quote, would that we had died by the hand of Adonai in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate bread till we were satisfied. For you have brought us into this wilderness to bring death to his whole this whole assembly by starvation. And God's reply is not a patient one. You want bread? I'll give you bread. I'll rain down on your heads and you'll go out and get it each day. But see that you only take one day's worth during the week and a double portion on Shabbat because I'm watching to see what you do. And Moshe and Aharon add that there would also be something at sunset, something that would prove God's glory despite all the kvetching to Moshe and Aharon. About God and their predicament. So with God taking over the catering, the Jews had an unceasing supply of man, which the text describes as as like a coriander seed. It's like whitish with a taste of like like wafer and honey for the daytime and and quail meat at night. Moshe also instructs Aharon to gather an Omer's worth of man and put it in a vat as a, quote, safekeeping throughout your generations. and Omer, the text points out as a tenth of an ephah, which, if you have your pencil and abacus ready, equals 72 logs, with a log equal to the Sumerian mina, which was one sixtieth of a maris, the quantity of water equal in weight to a light royal talent, which equals about 30.3 liters. So Aharon sets aside 3.64 liters of ban for future generations to marvel and admire. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion, and Michael Wex has some things to say about it, so let's get to it. So I guess I could start start with just just an introduction of, uh, I guess, the embarrassing part about who you are.
1: I'm a writer and occasional researcher. Uh, mostly in Yiddish, but also in other areas of, of Jewish culture. My best-known book is called Born to Fetch, and I've also written a few others, uh, among them Just Say New, How to Be a Mensch and Not a Schmuck. Uh, most recently, a novel from his family business, and I guess by the time we get to the this will be more of a, a Dover Vieta. Uh, my first novel is being reissued at the end of February in the revised and expanded edition. It's called Schlepping the Exile and will be coming out, uh, as I said, at the end of February.
0: Wow. And and Born to Kvetch is still the best-selling book ever written about Yiddish? Yes,
1: once you bear in mind the fact that Leo roston's subtitle for The Joys of Yiddish is a book about English, <laughs> a line for which I give thanks every day. <laughs> he said it, not me. You know, I, I didn't say it. Uh, All right. So if you take him seriously, yes, uh, it, it still is.
0: Great. Right, well, so the reason why I asked you to join me on this uh, this episode of Tanakhcast, because uh you know Exodus thirteen through sixteen, although written in Hebrew, probably should have been better written in Yiddish, or at least read in Hebrew with a Polish accent, right? Because it's all about kvetching.
1: Everything sounds better with a Polish accent. Yeah,
0: everything sounds better. But I mean, it, this week's portion is really all about kvetching, so that's why I thought of, of of getting you to come on and and talk about you know kvetching as an as an art form, I guess, or kvetching as a
1: way of of, of life. Um, yeah, which it basically becomes. <sighs> At least, at least in the Yiddish-speaking world, I can't can't speak for the rest of the Jewish world. Mm-hmm. but Certainly within Yiddish, but again, Yiddish didn't make this up out of out of whole cloth. There was plenty of precedent for it, plenty of preparation going on in, in the millennia prior to the development of Yiddish. Mm-hmm. You know, you see that fairly clearly in in Bishalach in, in this week's Sedra, where you know, what what's going on? If you look at the Sedra, you know, wh- what happens? The, the, the Israelites are at the lip of the Red Sea. And, okay, you know, this is not maybe the best place to be. There's a large body of water in front of them. Coming up from behind are Pharaoh and his hosts. You can understand why they, they have cause for concern. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look good. Yet, you know, if you look at what's been going on for the past few chapters in the Torah, you know, God has already visited 10 plagues that I'm sure you've discussed in great detail Mm -hmm. of increasing severity on the Egyptians, starting out with all the water turning into blood, finishing up not very long before this with uh, Machus Bacchorus, the plague of the firstborn, in which the firstborn male of everything that wasn't jewish in egypt has been killed in between uh, or just before that plague and during the course of the previous plague hail or darkness they have gone into the houses of the egyptians as the women went in and asked for and you can put asked for in quotation marks they asked for things from their Egyptian about-to-be ex-neighbors. So here we are, the children of Israel are all massed together at the shore of the sea. They're loaded down with the equivalent of Bloomingdale's bags full of stuff that they have spoiled, of which they've despoiled the Egyptians. Mm -hmm. You would think, yeah, it's a bit of a difficult situation, but you would think it would occur to them by this point that somebody up there likes them. Somebody is on their side. And you can understand why the Torah might tell us what the Torah should have told us, that they should look up to Moses and say to him something biblical. They should say, you know, oh, Moses, great preceptor, what miracle will the Holy One blessed be he now Perform in order to reveal his greatness before the nations of the world. This is what they're supposed to say. But what do they say? They open their mouths, and you've got to realize and you've got to remember: this is the first time that the Bnei rule, that the Israelites, are ever described as having spoken. Ten minutes before, they're slaves, their chattels, their property. Slaves have no voice slaves make sounds but it doesn't matter and the only description we've got earlier uh, we've got in the Torah rather comes earlier uh in in Parsha's Shmos and they're not talking it says mm-hmm. they sighed from the work by Yizaku, and they cried out and their cries went up to God and the Lord uh, and he hears their, their screaming that's all they do prior to this this isn't speech a baby can do all of this mm-hmm. but here at the shore of Yamsu, for the first time they, uh, the Torah uses the verb Amar and they spoke about B'nai Yisro and this is again this is the first utterance from the collective mouth of the Jewish people, and they look up at Moses, and what is the first thing they say? <laughs> what? There weren't enough graves in Egypt? You had to us out into the desert to die. What did we tell you? Let us stay here and serve Pharaoh, which is a complete lie, as we all know. But here you have it. They've been free for 10 minutes, and already they're behaving just like any disgruntled tour group that has gone to Israel for the very first time. This
0: is the basic kvetch.
1: Yeah, this is the basic kvetch. And, you know, this kind of kvetching goes on and on throughout the Tanakh, particularly in the Torah. This is the basic mode of Israelite communication, uh, either with the divine directly or with Moshe uh, who then conveys the message to, to, to God. But it, it eventually there, you develop a dialectic here. It, it's kind of like Newton's third law of Hebrew dynamics. So that if a uh, potato could have fallen out Isaac Newton's head instead of a, an apple, this is what you would have got, which is that for every kvetch, there is an equal and opposite counter kvetch, usually delivered by the Lord. Here, the obvious thing is the the sea parts, and they walk through, and that, that's fine. But it gets clearer later on. Already, once they cross, uh, once they cross the Red Sea, it doesn't take long for them to start complaining about the food. And got, you know, obviously, they had nothing with them but the matzah, mm-hmm. that, and and the leftover uh, the leftover that they're said to have brought with them, and they didn't have any other food. So all right, you can cut them a bit of slack here because it seems to take a, a little while before they actually start complaining. And God sends some quails, and the quails fall down. But much later, already in Bamidbar, in uh, in Baha'u'llowsha, there's a famous, you know, one of the best-known fetches in the whole Bible, when they start to complain about the manna. And, you know, once again, they come to Moses, and they say, you know, this is... Uh, probably one of the best-known things in the Bible, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we had in Egypt for nothing. We remember the cucumbers, the melons, the onions, the garlic, and the leeks. And now there is our strength is all dried up, and there's nothing before our eyes but this manna. It's, it's not like they're grateful. for anything. <laughs> It's not like, you know, I mean, okay, the manna, it was a bit of a problem, which we see later i I believe not not too far on from their their complaint at, at the red sea that you know moses tells them how to go out and gather the manna each person is supposed to get so much for each member of his household and take it back and you're supposed to go on friday and take a double portion and of course they're out there on shabbos trying to gather up man and everything they don't really pay much attention they're so ungrateful, they never even bothered to give the stuff a name. They look at it and what do they say? Manhu, you know, what the hell is this? Another day of my life, I have to eat without doing anything. You know, the biggest problem with the manna is they did have to bend over in order to pick it up. So why, why are they complaining? Everybody who has a traditional education, passed about the fourth or fifth grade, knows the famous madrash the famous midrash that the manna as long as you were an israelite could taste it had all the flavors in the world it, says right. in the it could taste like anything you wanted it to taste like if you wanted it to taste like steak it would taste like steak if you wanted it, it would it should taste like chicken it tasted like chicken and it was so authentic tasting that you had all the same reactions as you would have had if it were the real thing so that the only things that the manna couldn't taste like were dafke two of the flavors that the Israelites are asking for, onions and garlic, the potato chip combo, because they were worried that infants, suckling infants, would not drink their mother's milk if it tasted like onions and garlic. And if, you know, the women, uh, mm. I guess the background to that is, you know, pregnant women getting bizarre food craves. They want, you know, they say they want meat, but, of course, they wouldn't have gotten meat in Egypt. Uh, They remember the fish that they got for nothing. Well, firstly, you're slaves. You don't get paid. All of your food is for nothing. And the Gemara asks, the the, the Talmud asks uh, the rhetorical question, if the Egyptians wouldn't even give them straw to make bricks with, how are they going to give them fish for nothing? And Moses goes and he relays this whole complaint uh, to the Rabbi Shalaylam, who responds. And it's almost, it's almost like Jackie Gleason talking to Norton on the Honeymooners. Uh, he says, he says, you want me, you're going to get me, and you're going to eat it. Not for one day or two days, not for five days or ten days. Not for 20 days, and you can just hear him almost saying Norton here, but for 30 days, you're going to get meat and you're going to eat it until it's coming out of your noses. And that's exactly what happens. Once again, quails fly over the camp, apparently just drop dead magically. Uh, for whatever reason, that was still halakhically acceptable for them to eat this. They eat the quails. The quails start to rot because there are more than they can eat. A plague breaks out. X number of people get killed. Everybody gets suddenly all good and pruned for five minutes and go, you know, God, please take away the plague. All you got to do is take it away. We promise we'll never ask for anything again. You know, there's a reason they're called the children of Israel. (laughs) Uh, God hears their cry. The plague abates. And what is the first line of the next chapter? Miriam and Aaron were murmuring against Moses' wife. And every time you see murmur in an English Bible, translated into more colloquial Jewish, as kvetch, and you'll get what it means. They never seem to learn. The only possible grounds for their complaining about the manna that I've ever been able to find is in an old medrash in, in Sifri. Uh, which is a uh, very old Midrash, they bring a thing, uh, they're talking about why the manna, you know, wh- wh- what the manna is. And uh, sometimes manna is, there, there's a line in the psalm that talks about lechem avirim, which is usually translated as something along the line of the food of angels. And they say, don't read it as avirim, but rather as avarim read it to mean the food of limbs or members of the body and from this they deduce that the manna unlike regular food wasn't actually digested that you simply absorbed it into yourself in some sort of osmotic fashion and thus and i'm quoting the members here they had no need to evacuate so apparently for the 40 years that they ate nothing but manna, according to Devorim, in the desert, nobody actually went to the washroom, or at least they didn't go uh, for Godoylum, for for number two. And there's a question that comes up there. Uh, this is also, this is all repeated in the Gemara, in, uh, in Yoima, in, I think it's uh, 75. Uh, you know, they ask there, there's a line in, in Deuteronomy that says, uh, you know, while you're there, you should have a yitade, uh, which is here not so much a tent peg as like a trowel. And you should take the yitade and dig a little hole with it and cover up that which you have evacuated with dirt. And so well, why do we need this? And the answer is, well, whatever you buy and eat from the nations of the world, and we have to remember that uh, the Asafsuf, the, Asaf the Erevrov, didn't like the manna. It tasted to them, it had a bitter and awful taste for them. So they may have been trading with surrounding peoples uh, and thus having to do this. Uh, But the answer is, you know, what you buy from the nations of the world comes out of you, but the manna stays with you forever. And they go to Moses in the Medrash, and they actually say, how can people live if they never go to the toilet? And I think this is ultimately the beginning of the collection about food in the Bible, which also gives us, uh, well before the dawn of the Yiddish era, the, the proto-history, I guess, of Jewish complaints, particularly Ashkenazi Jewish complaints, about digestion, that kind of complaint that has come to characterize an entire culture. <laughs> it's all there in these in, in these ancient texts. Like I said, Sifra is so old that The Talmud quotes it, you know it was around before before the redaction of the Talmud, so it it's uh, you know a, a venerable tradition, let us say
0: so if this is the first utterance of the Jewish people as a free people, you know people have often talked about the behavior of, of the Jews in the desert as being a function of you know having living as slaves and not having a voice and when you have this first opportunity to express yourself. You're going to complain. You're going to kvetch. But after the generation of the desert dies out, it still continues.
1: Yeah, it continues. And it, it just seems to be built in. Uh, you know, you can see when when, when Moshe goes at one point uh, to God, he sounds like my mother used to. He's going like, either kill me or get me some hell. You know, I can't guys anymore all they do is complain and that's when god appoints the the 70 elders to help them uh you you see that they're they've always been dissatisfied why originally we don't know but this is the, the satisfaction that we see in the torah particularly and later in in much of Neviim is the dissatisfaction of people who pretty much have everything that they want. When Once you come to Yiddish, of course, you're dealing with a thousand or so years since the destruction of the Second Temple. So a thousand or so years of constant goalless with the rise of real uh, anti-religious, anti-Jewish religious fields you know, where their problems with the Assyrians were just that they happened to be in the way, and the Assyrians had the same problem with anybody who wasn't one of them. Mm -hmm. Jewish problems with, uh, let's say, competing religions in in the more modern world, uh, particularly with Christianity, uh, meant that, you know, you had people who were by definition second-class citizens who had no guaranteed rights or anything else, and they had even more to catch about than than uh than their forebears did. And they seem to have taken full advantage of this, or at least to have put the training that uh that our forefathers, that our ancestors had to good use uh in in dealing with this. Because of course complaining by that time after after the Horme Besamish, complaining is really all that they have left. And and again you can see some of this developing in the V, and, you know, if you look at it, Hebrew prophecy, particularly in the three major prophets, in, in uh in Yemiyohu, and Yhezko, but also in, in the Treosar, this is pretty much ketching in the name of God. This is reversing the source of the ketch. You know, Boning Gedalti, I have raised up children, etc., and look at a donkey is smarter than you people uh, you know that kind of thing certainly also contributes to a, mm-hmm. you could say a predisposition to look for what's wrong and then let everybody around you know about it
0: do you think there's a future to Kvetching?
1: Uh, as long as as long as a human being draws breath <laughs> And as long as that human being happens to be a Jew, I think there's – it's in no danger of, of going anywhere. Uh, again, you know, with the lamentable state of Yiddish today as, as a living language, it's one of the main words that has continued. I, I can't imagine a Jewish person of any denomination, of any degree of assimilation, who knows that he or she is Jewish, not being familiar with this word—that uh, is, of
0: Ashkenazi background, at any rate. Well, Michael, thank you so much for uh, sharing your thoughts with me about the parsha, the portion of, the, of this episode, and kvetching. And gosh, it's going to take me a while to process all the uh, all of what you said about about our our predilection to kvetching. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, again. Nice to talk to you. We're- that no, it was fun to do. Thanks for asking,
0: me. Okay. Have a good have, night. Yeah,
1: have a good night. Bye-bye. Bye. I'd like to thank Michael
0: Wex once again. He's a columnist, bon vivant, and raconteur, and author of Born to Kvetch, Yiddish Language and Culture in All Its Moods. The best-selling book ever written about Yiddish. I'll have more information about him at facebook.com slash Hanavcast or at thenextdue.com, where you can also leave a comment, question or comment. and since you're in that headspace, why not leave us a, a similar comment, Question or comment at the iTunes Store? And, you know, kvetch out a review. That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 19 on Exodus
1: chapter 17 through 20. Y'all come back now. Here?